I want to um, talk about being bold for God. So in Acts chapter 4, you've got Peter and John who, on their way to the temple, have healed a middle-aged cripple. The Bible says he's in his 40s. And most people, once they get into that middle-aged period of their life, and maybe at that era where lifespans were even shorter, maybe it should be considered even older, people at that point don't suddenly recover from a lifetime of being a cripple. And Peter and John come past, he asks for silver and gold, and I'm not going to sing you the song, but essentially it is silver and gold have I none, but such as I, as I have, if I quote the song, such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he walks. He doesn't just walk, he goes, to quote the song, what does he do? Do Leaping, uh, now walking and leaping and praising God, yes. So you've got the story. Now, needless to say, if somebody did that today, it would still get considerable attention. And in that era, it got considerable attention. Peter and John are dragged in before the Sanhedrin and before the Sanhedrin, they are threatened. And essentially, they're told, keep your mouth shut or else. And so we see that they now live in an era here in Acts chapter 4 where they are under threat. Persecution has not yet broken out but the writing's on the wall. They live in the shadow of impending persecution and they know that as far as sharing Jesus publicly, it's now not the popular thing to do. Remember the Sanhedrin is the highest Jewish authority at that point beside Rome. Now, a number of years ago, because the Romans thought the Jews were too barbaric and exercised capital punishment too often, they'd stripped them of that right. So they didn't have the right to pass a judgment of capital punishment of death. But they did have the right to do most things below that. And so Peter and John are threatened, they go back, they meet with the believers and there in Acts chapter 4, they pray this amazing prayer, which we're not going to spend time on today because I want to get to Paul in Athens. But in Acts chapter 4, they pray this prayer that is so different to the prayer that I think I might have prayed in those circumstances. They pray a prayer that begins by extolling the virtues of God. God the Creator, God who is in control, God who has allowed these things to happen and then finally after they've been two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the prayer, they get to their request and their request is not, Lord, please stop the persecution from breaking out, which I think I might have prayed. The prayer they pray is, Lord, give us boldness to continue to share the Gospel pretty amazing prayer when you think about it and what's even more amazing as you heard in the scripture reading within two verses of them praying that prayer the room is shaken the spirit is poured out and they preach the gospel with boldness 
And so what you see is this prayer begins to be answered in Acts chapter 4 and then continues to be answered right throughout the book of Acts. It's in fact one of the themes that we find going right through and whether it's Peter in Jerusalem or Stephen or Philip or Barnabas or Silas or Paul, the story is they preach the gospel with boldness. And this is where I want to come to Athens. This is a current day map of Athens and while, there we go, the the pointer works, while it's not real clear, you could search this up on Google Maps as I did during the week and this is what you will find. So this is in the old part of Athens, over here you have the Acropolis, the Parthenon, the world famous icon of Greece. Over here you have the Areopagus, Mars Hill. And over here, you have the ancient marketplace or the Agora in Athens. And we'll see in a moment with a couple of pictures I've got, the marketplace is probably where Paul would have entered Athens through. Because the marketplace is down in the, in the sort of the, the, the lower areas of the city. This is where people would have gathered and talked and bought and sold and done all of that. Mars Hill, the Areopagus or the Hill of Ares, Mars is just the Roman name of it, this is, as the name gives away, a hill. Not the highest point in the city but it's up above the marketplace. And then up here you have the Acropolis which of course looks down over the city. Just putting you in the picture. Now here's a picture from one end, this is from the other side of the Acropolis and, you know, amazing city and it really, when you look at it, you see how it looks down over the city. This next picture gives you an idea from the marketplace, which is the the ruins you see down here below, looking back towards the, the Acropolis there. And then if you go to this one, this is just an artist's impression from the last cent, no, century before last, of what it might have looked like there um, looking back towards the, the you know, the grand um, scene that we would have seen had we been there at that, t- that time. So here we are and, and I'm going to have the text up on the screen but if you want to follow in your Bibles, we're going to be picking it up at Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Here we are in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul has had a, a pattern when he goes about preaching, as have the other preachers in the book of Acts. The first place they will go every time is go and preach to the synagogue and the God-fearers. So the synagogue, they're the Jews, the God-fearers are those that are often attached to the synagogue. They're not Jews, but they've been exposed to scriptures, they believe in God, so they have some understanding of it. So the people that are most likely to, to receive the message are those that already know the true God. And to become a Christian, to accept Christ, was a mere one step in the process. They already believed everything, all they had to do was accept Jesus and they had the full package. So here is Paul, he arrives in Athens and this is what the text says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So here's Paul, 
he is all on his own because had we read a little earlier, he's just escaped from Thessalonica and Berea. And he's escaped there because there's mobs after him, essentially. There's a whole bunch of people that are looking to destroy him, literally. And so those that he's working with send him on ahead and off he goes. He, he, he runs ahead of the persecution and comes to Athens. And when he arrives in Athens, he is completely alone. And alone in every sense of the word. He's not only alone in terms of his colleagues are not with him, they're yet to catch up to him. He's alone in that there is no one else in that city that shares his worldview, his belief or anything. And when he arrives in Athens, rather than seeing this extraordinary beauty what he sees actually distresses him. And I'm just going to go back to this one. You see how down the bottom here, you've got all these pillars. These pillars would have been much taller and on the top of these pillars would have been the heads of gods, the head of Hermes and whatever other god you want to call them. Um, and so as he walks into this city, he literally is walking into what looks to him to be like a forest of idols. It is just swamped and every way he turns, he sees idols on pillars and idols in temples and, and the, the place is just swamped in idolatry. And so when he comes to this city, what he sees, instead of seeing it through the eyes of a tourist, he sees it through the eyes of a prophet where he just sees these people that are lost, desperately ignorantly, even though they're highly educated, completely lost. And he's distressed by it. This word that, that is translated as distressed, we get our English word paroxysm from it. It's an old word, we don't use it too much, but it's this idea that it's distress almost to the point of having a seizure over it. And actually, it's the same word that's used in the Old Testament when it talks about God's reaction when Israel falls into idolatry because when Israel fall into idolatry there's this this gut reaction from God that this is you know there, there is nothing worse that could happen and Paul is seeing it through the eyes of God not through the eyes of a tourist as we look at it and so as it goes on it says so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks Notice the formula is followed, if you like. He starts where they always start, with those that know the Scriptures. But that's it. There's no more mention. There's no mention of how they respond. If they respond, we assume they don't. But that's not the focus of the passage, because it goes on and says, he also was in the, sin in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So in the marketplace... He comes across a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and they began to debate with him as it says. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And I want you to notice that last bit. There's some that say, oh well what Paul did in Athens was completely different to what he does elsewhere. No, he preaches Jesus and the resurrection because that's what Paul did. 
But let's just go back here. They're making some accusations against him. And I want to pick up on the accusations before we talk about who these Epicureans and Stoics are. They're an interesting lot. So, the accusation they're making against him, there's two of them. Accusation number one is Paul is just a babbler. Now, depending on what translation you've got, if you've got a more literal translation in front of you, it will use different words. One of the translations actually renders it absolutely literally from the Greek and says, Paul is a seed picker. Yeah, what is, you know, what sort of accusation is it to say, Paul, you seed picker? You know, it doesn't really roll off the tongue for us so much. But if you think about it, it's like this. What they are accusing Paul of is being like a pigeon, and you can picture it in the marketplace, pecking around in the seed that's left on the ground and just picking up bits and pieces and, and just flinging that out at them in conversation as they reason together. And so it's, it's a bit like saying, Paul, you are just a poser. You are so full of yourself and you don't even know what you're talking about. You are just a, a pigeon, a sky rat, pecking around in the seed and it doesn't mean anything. Okay, so it's an insult. Not a bad insult when you actually unpick it. Um, anyway. The second insult is actually more than an insult. The second insult is he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, what you didn't notice, and let me just go back to the map, what you didn't notice on this map is down here, you will see there the prison of Socrates. There's a connection here to, to Socrates because what some are suggesting is that the the writer of Acts, which is Luke, is presenting Paul as a bit of a new Socrates in Athens. Socrates, going back centuries before, had come or had been in Athens and at one point is accused of introducing new gods. And on the surface of it, you think, so, they've got a city full of gods. The problem is, the history with this informs how we read this. The history of this is that Socrates ended up in prison because he had been trying to introduce new gods to Athens and that wasn't allowed. The Areopagus would make sure that didn't happen. So, when Paul is accused of introducing new gods or foreign divinities or however it's translated, this is a really dangerous accusation. The ultimate outcome of this accusation could be that he will end up like Socrates and that is dead. So, this is, this is serious stuff for Paul. Anyway, so here's Paul, he preaches Jesus and the resurrection and what we get in Scripture as it unfolds is a, um, a picture of Paul presenting Jesus and the resurrection but what we actually get with his sermon, if you like, is a, is a summary. It's only a bunch of verses but it's unique. Anyway, then it says, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus 
was the highest ruling body in Greece. Not exactly parallel, but not dissimilar to the Jewish Sanhedrin, only probably more powerful. The Areopagus had existed before Rome and there's some interesting stories as to how they came to be, but we'll leave that for today. The Areopagus possibly was made up of 30 of the most elite, distinguished individuals in Athens and some evidence exists to say they actually had the power to exile people from the city and possibly even had the power of capital punishment. The Romans were were very pragmatic in the way they ruled. When they would come in, they would use, if the rebellion wasn't too severe, in which case they'd just wipe them off the map, but if they were amenable to being taken over by the Romans to a degree, the Romans would then use the existing structures to rule through them. So the Areopagus is the ruling council of Greece. It's the elite. And Paul, it doesn't seem that he has to appear here, he's invited. Maybe it's implied that he has to be there, but anyway, he turns up before the Areopagus and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? And they say, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Now, why would they like to know what they mean? Are they genuine seekers? Are they just sort of seeking to find out a new idea, which the next verse talks about? Or are they actually looking to convict him in a criminal sense? It doesn't, it seems to be a more informal setting as you read the story. It doesn't seem to be a formal court hearing, but maybe it could have led to that. Now, I like verse 21. Verse 21 is a bit of fun. This is Luke having a dig at the Athenians. There's a bit of irony in this, because what he says is, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Code... Paul has been accused of being a seed picker, a babbler, a philosophical poser. And what Luke is now getting in for us is, well, it looks like that they're accusing Paul of being the babbler, of being the seed picker, but actually the real seed pickers, the real babblers, the real posers are the Athenians themselves because they do nothing but sit around and talk all day. And actually... They're more interested in pursuing the new than pursuing the true. And Paul comes to declare the true. And watch what happens. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see indeed that you are very religious in every way. This can be translated two ways. Maybe there's a a sense in which, as a believing reader, we can kind of appreciate the other alternative translation. The alternative translation, and it's legitimate, is to say, I see that in every way you are very superstitious. Now, we're going to go with the very religious reading because Paul is trying clearly to build some common ground with them, to find a language that they can understand so that they can hear and hopefully accept the gospel. But as believing readers, we look at that and say, well, yeah, they were a pretty superstitious lot. 
You know, they had the whole Greek pantheon of the gods and the Romans had come along and appropriated them and renamed them, but it was still the same bunch of gods and the city is full of idols and now Paul is standing in the Areopagus. Below him is the marketplace with that forest of idols. Above him is and every which way he looks, he is surrounded by idolatry. They're a religious bunch of people and he's complimenting them for that because they're seeking something. And he says, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is Paul at his God-inspired best. We just read it and say, oh yeah, he saw a, you know, an altar... Uh, and, and commentators say, you know, from time to time, altars or temples would fall into disrepair because there were so many of them in Greece, they couldn't keep track of them all. And so someone came along and maybe put an inscription on it to an unknown God because they couldn't remember which God it was supposed to be to. Paul's seen it. But this is actually a stroke of genius because they have accused him of being like Socrates. But Paul's better because Paul's introducing the real gospel a better gospel than Socrates ever did. Socrates ended up dead because he was trying to introduce new gods. Paul is not trying to introduce new gods to them. He's trying to introduce to them the oldest god of all that has been around so long in Athens that they've forgotten his name. And suddenly the accusation of introducing new gods is just knocked out at its foundation. The risk of capital punishment now starts sliding down. Clever stuff. He goes on, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This is where I want to tell you about Epicurus or Epicurus or the Epicureans and the Stoics, just briefly. Both Epicurus and Zeno, who was the founder of the Stoics, had been around, or the teachings had been around for about three centuries by the time Paul comes along. Epicurus taught in the Garden of Tranquility. He lived outside of the hustle and bustle of the city. The ultimate aim of the Epicureans was to live a life of tranquility and peace. They were not the people that would indulge in everything. Sometimes we talk about, we use the Epicurean thing as, you know, will you indulge in everything and do everything? No, that's not where it started. That's not what it was like in Paul's day. Epicureans indeed would seek to sample and to try and to live life, but life was about achieving peace and tranquility, not taking public office because that was far too much bother and just about being removed from the troubles of life and the troubles of pain and being removed from the gods. They didn't believe in the God. Well, they believed in the gods, but they believed that the gods had achieved tranquility and peace. And to achieve tranquility and peace meant nothing to do, having nothing to do with these troublesome human beings. 
And so the gods had achieved it. And so it's a little bit like, you, you would say they're probably equivalent to the agnostic secularists of today, um, those who believe uh, maybe God exists, but He has nothing to do with us anymore. He's removed and we are removed. And so we just find our own path in life. We try to find the peace and tranquility that we can and when you die, you're dead, life is done, finished, there is no afterlife, there is nothing more, it's just that. That's the Epicureans. Once people became Epicureans, they tended to stay there too. Stoics, Stoics were, you know, we still use the word when people are Stoic, you know, that stiff upper lip, you go and do your duty, well, that's correct. Um, they, they had a number of Stoic teachers along the year, they're a bit more flexible in their belief, but to be a Stoic was to be committed to duty. You would live an upright, responsible life. Your contribution to the good of society was important. They were what we would call pantheists, that is, they believed we are all part of God. We're all part of the world's soul. Um, and in that sense, they were more connected to the gods, but there was no real living personal God that they would connect to. And in that sense, they had this fuzzy idea of a short, maybe spirit after life, or just a short period after death, but they actually, for, for both schools of thought, and they were the dominant schools of thought in Athens, there was no sense of physical resurrection because actually, it was, it was almost anathema to them because the idea of physical body, you know, the physical body is just something to be left behind and to achieve whatever else. Um, it was pretty hazy. So, when Paul comes and proclaims this in his sermon, he actually is connecting with their philosophical worldviews, but very carefully. The Epicureans said, God is nowhere in nothing. The Stoics said, God is everywhere in everything. And if you look at this, there's elements of it that appeal to both. And I'm not going to take the time to tease it all out. You know, God who made the world does not live in temples. Epicureans, you're right. He gives it, you know, He Himself gives everyone life and breath. Stoics, you're right. God is everywhere, but not like you think. He's real and living and personal. He made all the nations. The Athenians had this idea that they had somehow sprung from the soil of Attica. They were special, they were above everyone else, they were racially superior. Paul's knocking this down a peg or two and saying, doesn't matter where you've come from, God made us all and we are all His creation. Knocks out a tool of injustice, I guess you'd say. Anyway, we've got to keep moving. God did this so they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far away. So again, it's, it's, it's appealing to what they're thinking. And then this quote, two quotes um, from Aratus and Epimenides, verse 28, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are, we are His offspring. He is quoting, both of these are poetry or hymns to Zeus and what he does is he takes very select fragments of it and says, you got that right for 
the real God, the unknown God, the true God. And what you see is we get all the way to here, verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. What's he saying? He's introducing them to a real, living, personal God. This is not the God they have known or the gods they have known because they are ignorant of the true God and Paul is coming in and looking at them and realizing that I feel like condemning this hopeless lot. But how can I condemn condemn them when they don't even know? And what you see here now is his appeal, he ends up at the same place that every other sermon in Acts ends up. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. People, you've got to change. And what you may not have noticed or what you may have noticed is that to to date, Paul has not quoted Scripture once to them. You don't find it. It's consistent with Scripture He alludes to Scripture, but he doesn't quote it. In Jerusalem and other synagogues and so forth, it's Scripture heavy, quote after quote after quote. In Athens, where Scripture means nothing to his hearers, he quotes their own authorities to them, selectively, very selectively, where it's consistent with Scripture. And having arrived at that, he appeals to them to change. Anyway, it doesn't last long because it says he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. Greek thinking was circular, Hebrew thinking was linear, so again, that was foreign to them. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead and with that, the whole thing comes to an end. When they heard it, that is the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneer, some of them are more polite than that, they're not going to mock but they'll say, oh yeah, maybe we'll hear more later, they probably don't want to hear it but they're being polite, some of them do want to hear it and Paul leaves. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed, among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others and there ends Paul's Athens adventure. Fascinating story, when you see what Paul is actually doing. He's not driven out of Athens, he leaves of his own accord. It's not a failure because at least two are named that believe, Dionysius, one of the elite, and Damaris, who we know nothing about other than the fact that she's a woman. And that in itself is significant. The gospel is for men, it is for women, it is for rich, it is for poor, it is for everyone. And Paul is bold enough to proclaim it in the most amazing place in Athens. Who are the others? We don't know. Doesn't tell us anything about a church, doesn't tell us anything about baptisms, because it's about Paul preaching to an educated pagan audience and giving us a template of how we also might be able to reach them. So here's the takeaway. The way they do it in the synagogue, in the more traditional way, is the common ground that exists is the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures and they quote from it extensively. Sometimes we do evangelism that way and it's appropriate. Truth is then declared from the Bible that leads to belief or repentance and belief. The way Paul does it in Athens is a little different. He finds common ground in order to be able to communicate. He does not assume that quoting an authority they know nothing about will mean anything to them. 
So he finds the common ground in order to communicate, he declares the truth to them, which, by the way, happens to be consistent with Scripture, but not necessarily quoting it. And then that leads to the same place and that of repentance and belief. So in the last two minutes, here's three things I believe we can learn from this. What does it mean to be bold for God? Is Israel Folau's cause righteous? You make of that what you will. This is what I see in Acts 17. Number one, boldness may mean being a missionary to educated pagans who know nothing of God and know nothing of Scripture. Athens is not a failure because Paul does present Jesus and the resurrection and some believe. It's consistent with Paul going on afterwards to Corinthians and also there preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Number two, boldness seeks to find common ground because by finding common ground, the hearers might hear. Remember, communication needs both the one originating the message and one hearing the message. Number three, boldness may require thoughtfulness and diplomacy in order to successfully share the message. And when we stop and we think about that, we know it's true because if we talk to our neighbours and they don't believe in God and don't accept Scripture, we don't go in quoting Scripture to them. But it's also a challenge and here's the challenge. I want to go on a path after reading this chapter of discovering what it means to be bold for God and I want to invite you to join me on that journey. Will you? You're invited. Father, we thank you for your love, we thank you for this gospel story that changes lives forever and Lord, whether it be Paul in Athens or us in Melbourne, help us to be bold for you. We pray for anyone that would seek to be bold for you, that you would guide and give wisdom as to know how best to communicate the gospel in a world that is in desperate need. So, Lord, go with us as we go from this place, in Jesus' name. Amen.